All right, good morning. How is everyone? Good. Good to see everybody. You guys want to look at God's Word this morning? Okay. All right, let's go, man. Hey, we are continuing our series on the life of Moses. We probably have um, probably another, another four messages, and then we'll transition to a, a book study. Most likely the Gospel of John is what I'm thinking, but I could change my mind. So, uh, Gospel of John. Um, this Thursday is National Day of Prayer. I want to encourage you to come. All the details are in the bulletin. Um, it's kind of a come and go thing, but I think it would be so awesome if we gather together uh, towards the start time. Try to put that into your schedule. Bring your kids, bring your family. We're going to pray together, pray individually for different um, pockets of, of our culture and our community. And so I really wanted to just, you know, really encourage you to come, right? This is kind of a unique day in our country, and there's a lot of things we could be praying for. So um, if you could squeeze that into your schedule, I know life is busy. Um, we all have busy schedules, but love to have you come. All right, pull out your message notes. Uh, like I said, we're going to continue our series on the life of Moses. And today, we are actually uh, going to be in Numbers chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20. And we're going to talk about frustration. We're going to talk about frustration, anger, um, even a little bit about the disappointments of life, okay? Um, so pull out your Bible, smartphone, message notes, and we're going to dig into it. You know, if anyone in the Bible could write a PhD dissertation on frustration, it would be good church. Good. There was two of you. That's awesome. There's an episode in his life that often gets overlooked. And I, honestly, I'll be honest with you, it's something that, like, I personally, like, I, I struggle with the outcome. I struggle with the result of it all because I am finite. I'm not infinite, right? I don't have the wisdom that God has, right? We are broken, frail human beings. And so God has a perspective on our lives, on sin, on his holiness that sometimes we don't have, right? And so um, there's some things that this, with the scriptures, you know, you, you wrestle with. At the end of the day, God always wins. He always wins. The scripture always wins. So if you're, you're facing something that you're like, you know, you know that, that, that kind of rubs me the wrong way, or I, I, you know, I, w I wouldn't do it that way. Well, guess what? You're not God, okay? So just deal with it, all right? So um, I really think, honestly, this is one of the saddest stories Saddest chapters in the book of Numbers. It's heartbreaking. I mean, it, it, it's going to rip your heart out. So we're going to talk about it. We're going to dive into it. Um, we're going to look at the, the saddest story, Numbers chapter 20. Uh, beginning in chapter 20, Miriam dies. Verse 1, from the very beginning, it just tells us that, right? We know very soon Aaron is also going to die. So here's this spiritual leader, servant of the Lord, intercession the one who is interceding for his people, serving God's people, leading God's people, and his siblings begin to die. He loses his sister. He loses his brother. He's the last survivor of his family. Really, that kind of puts a new definition, new spin to the TV show Survivor. That's what it means to survive right there, man. He's surviving, right? He's losing his family. He's facing leadership challenges that are unthinkable. We know that part of their journey was to go from Sinai, well, Egypt, to the Sinai Desert, which is an uninhabitable, desolate wasteland. I mean, it's no man's land. 
right? No one survives there. And so the people start complaining again. You're going to see that they're going to complain again in chapter 20. He's facing fierce opposition, and they start complaining. Now their complaint is not so much, it's not food, it's water. Hey, Moses, you know what? We're running out of water. Actually, we, we're out of water. There's no water to drink. There's no, there's no water to give to our children. There's no water to give to our grandchildren. There's no water to give to our, our elderly parents. There's no water to give to our livestock. Moses, this is a real problem. I want you to see the complaint, verses two to five. It says, now there was no water for the congregation and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. This is like a common reoccurring theme. Listen, if you step up to be a leader, you're gonna face opposition. I'll also say this, if you are walking with Christ, you're gonna face opposition. If you're not facing any sort of opposition, any sort of spiritual warfare in your life, maybe you're on the wrong path, right? Your your walk with Christ isn't evident. So they assemble, they, they come at Moses, they come at Aaron, and it says, and the people quarreled with Moses and said, would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? If it is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates and there is no water to drink. So they kind of do sneak in the food thing, right? They sneak in the, hey, this is the menu we want, Moses. Like you're not providing the menu. So here we go again. They start complaining about water. Some historians say it could have been up to two million people. They assembled themselves, the text says. This is a strategic mutiny on Moses' hands. They're saying, you know what, Moses? It would have been better if we had died with our brothers. It, it would have been better if we had died with our, with our family. Now, I don't know if that's a reference back to slavery in Egypt or if that's a reference to Coral's Rebellion, which we looked at last week. There was mutiny. There was rebellion. People just, they went at Moses. They went at Aaron, right? And, and it, it created this massive rebellion. And there was this spiritual sinkhole that God created. And people got swallowed up and they were plunged into shield. Hades, the place of the dead in the Old Testament. And then we know at the end of the chapter, like 14,700 people, um, they died by plague. So they haven't learned their lesson They're like, you know, it would have been better if we had died. And um, 38 years of wandering, you would think, you would think that they would get it, right? How old are you? You don't have to answer. Some of you ladies are like, I'm not telling you my age, right? People get kind of weirded out about that, right? Listen, age is a blessing. It's a blessing. You either age or you die. Now, Paul said, for, for, to me to, to be, uh, for to me to live as Christ and die is gain. So death is gain for the believer. But you know what? Aging is a blessing. Losing your mind, having the aches and pains, the backache. I mean, I'm 43, man. I'm not, I'm not 23 anymore, you know? I'm starting to kind of feel it. Some of you are you're in your 70s, maybe 80s. You're like, oh, come on, man. Give me a break. 
Give me a break, dude. Okay, listen, I get it, right? Um, what was I saying? Yes, I was asking you about your age. How old are you, right? Have you learned? I haven't learned. There's a lot of things I just keep repeating. God's like, okay, well, let's, let's go back to start. You know, it's like the game Sorry. I love playing this game Sorry with my family because it's just cutthroat, man. It's just ruthless, you know? And um, if, if, if you... If you are dating, this, this is kind of my thing for my family. If, if you start liking someone and you bring them over to the house, if you can survive a cutthroat, ruthless, competitive game of sorry, your relationship can make it. <laughs> right? Because I'm all about knocking people off the board, man. I mean, sorry, boom. Go back to start, right? You know what God does in all of our lives? He's always saying, Go back to start. That's the grace of God. You know why? He could say, I'm through with you. I'm taking you to heaven. He gives us second chances. He gives us redos, right? Uh, I think it's called a mulligan. Because like, I don't know, a year ago, instead of saying mulligan, what did I say, Ken? I said, you know, God gives you a bogey. And people, like golf people, they were like, he's an idiot. He's an idiot. He didn't know what he's talking about. But you know what? God gives you a mulligan. I like mulligans. I like redos. I like starting over. They haven't learned their lesson. They're slow to learn, right? They're slow learners. Sounds like us. Did you know that the average American, this is going to shock you. The average American complains, they've done research on it, 15 hours a month. Some of you are like, not me. I don't complain ever, liar, liar. 15 hours a month. If you calculate that, that's seven and a half days of the year. You just complain. They haven't learned. We haven't learned, right? That's an entire week of complaining. It's crazy. You know, I don't know if you've um, been to the airport over the last few years. It's, it's really um, very frustrating, right? Very frustrating. Uh, you got to get through security. Well, you got to check your bags in. You got to get through security. And sometimes, you know, they start patting you down and you're like, listen, man, I, I ain't got nothing on me. Well, I want to read something from a woman that had a fun experience in an airport recently. Listen to this. She says, I was between flights in an airport. So I went in a store and bought a small package of cookies. I sat down and began reading a newspaper. Gradually, I became aware of a rustling noise from behind my newspaper. I was flabbergasted to see a neatly dressed man helping himself to my cookies. Not wanting to make a scene, I leaned over and took a cookie for myself. A minute or two passed and then came more wrestling. He was helping himself to another one of my cookies. So I grabbed another one. This went on until we were down to the last cookie, which the man broke in two, pushed half across to me, ate the other half and left. When my flight was announced, I opened my handbag to get my ticket to my shock and embarrassment. There, there I found my pack of unopened cookies. Not only had he been eating my cookies, I had been eating his cookies. Here's the lesson. When your kids ask you, Mom, Dad, what did you guys learn in church? Don't eat someone else's cookies. Sometimes other people, they're not the problem. You're the problem. You're the problem. You're the difficult one. 
right? You're the one that's hard to get along with. We are the problem. Let's say that together. We are the problem. It's so easy to point the finger. Say, you're the problem. You're the mistake. You're the one that, you know, jostles me, gets me all fired up. No, no, we're the problem. We have to own it. Look at verse 6. Pick up the story. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. So Moses says nothing. Pretty wise decision. I mean, how many times do we, we speak quickly and we get ourselves in trouble? I think this is why God gave us two ears and one mouth. He didn't give us two mouths and one ear. He says, James says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, right? Um, he knows that Moses is, he's in the thick of it. This, this is a battle for, for leadership and, and, um, and leading God's people well. And so he knows, I can't, I can't just respond, I have to react wisely. And so what does he do? He distances himself from the, from the angry mob, this mutiny crowd, and he, he literally goes to the tenant meeting and God meets him there and he falls on his face and he meets God there. It shows humility, it shows compassion, it shows that he's, he's interceding for the people. Now, look at verse seven, seven, eight, nine. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the staff and assemble the congregation and you and Aaron, your brother, and, and tell the rock, I want you to circle the word tell, tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Now when you, when you hear this, these instructions, many of you might be thinking, isn't there another story similar to this? Yes, Exodus 17. In, in that story, God tells Moses to strike the rock and water will flow, water will gush out. But here, in Numbers chapter 20, God says, I want you to speak to the rock. I want you to tell the rock and water will, will start gushing out. Now, the symbolism here is this. The rock, God's like, hey Moses, show my people how awesome my word is. Show my people how powerful I am, how awesome I am, how majestic I am, that my word can bring forth a waterfall of life. God is telling Moses, listen Moses, I just want you to be a tool. I'm gonna perform the miracle. I'm gonna do the miracle. I'm gonna do something that's gonna blow their minds. You're gonna speak to the rock and that rock is gonna split, water's gonna gush out, drought solved. Moses, I'm gonna carry on my shoulders. I got this. These are my people. I'm gonna perform this miracle. Look at verse 10. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? I mean, Moses is like super direct. He calls them rebels. Now, I didn't do much research on this, but Moses is not really into name calling. Like, he doesn't do this, right? He, he, he's generally quiet. Um, he, he, he takes everything before the Lord, but now it's like Moses has got to this point where it's like he's fed up. Like I can imagine Moses at this moment in his life, you know, 
38, close to 40 years, he is simmering. Like he's about to, he's about to blow. And they are complaining. And I can imagine maybe Moses is muttering underneath his breath, you bunch of complainers. That's all you've been doing. You've been complaining from the very first day about manna. It's like you don't even have to go to a job. God just provides manna for you every morning. All you got to do is go out and pick it up. Now, I, I get that there's not a variety of manna, but God's providing for you, and his provision is pretty sweet. So Moses gets to this point where he's just so frustrated. And I want you to laser in. I want you to laser in on the words, because every word in every chapter, in every book, Old and New Testament is inspired by God. Notice what he says here. He says, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Now, maybe I'm, I'm, maybe I'm peeling back something that's not there. Maybe it's just frustration and he's like, no, you don't deserve it. You've been complaining that God hasn't been satisfying you, that God's not enough for you. And so, no, I, we are not going to give you water. Or it could be possibly Moses attributing the miracle to his power. Shall we bring water out? And I think there's a principle here for all of us. It is so easy to rob God of his glory. How many times do we make a mess of our lives? How many times do we make such a mess of our lives? We seek repentance, there's confession, we get right with God, and God takes the ashes, the, the brokenness, the messiness, the clay pot that's been, that's been dropped and broken into a million pieces, and God takes all of that stuff and he makes something beautiful with it. He does something amazing with it. And then what we do is we step back because of our life has been so messy. Our past has been maybe so dark. We've just done so many sinful things. We remain quiet. We remain quiet because it's the tool of the enemy. The tool of the enemy is to steal, kill, and destroy. Satan is going to steal. He's going to try to steal and rob God of his rightful glory in your life. Take the messiness and the brokenness of your life, whether it's past, present, or future, and let God use it for his glory. So many times we're ashamed. Like the enemy uses shame and guilt and condemnation to cause us to be like, nope, I can't share that. I can't share that. If I share that, what are people going to think of me? And so we're so worried about reputation we're more concerned about reputation than how God could actually use our past for the advancement of his gospel and his kingdom and comforting other people who have gone through the same thing. Paul said, he told the Corinthians, hey guys, these are new believers, church is a mess, church gone wild, and he said, listen, here's what I want you to do. You, the, the comfort that you have received in Christ, I want you to extend it and comfort those in need who are experiencing the same things you're experiencing. So are you comforting people? Are you investing, engaging? Are you opening up about your life, right? Are you helping people that maybe have been where you've been? When we don't speak up, when we're silent, we rob God of his glory. When we gather and, and we don't sing and we're not worshiping God, we're robbing him of his glory. When God answers a prayer in your life and you don't praise him for it, you don't speak up, you're not grateful, you're not thankful, you're robbing him of his glory. When God uses you, 
in a very small, insignificant way to bring someone to faith in Christ. You didn't do the saving. Christ did. You're robbing. If you take credit, you're robbing God of his glory. No one saves no one. Christ saves everyone. We, we, we rob God of his glory all the time. By complaining and muttering and grumbling and, and being negative and Oh, you know, God, you can't come through. You won't come through. You've never come through. You know, when we do that, we're saying, God, your track record is not good. You can't come through. You're not faithful. When 10,000 times he's been faithful and he's been good and he's been kind and he's provided for us. Does does that make sense? I, I wonder if Moses is maybe kind of taking some credit, robbing God of his glory. Look at verse 11. Verse 11. Of Numbers 20. And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock. Circle the word struck. And with his staff twice, the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. All right, so what did God tell Moses to do? Speak to the rock. What did Moses do? He struck the rock, right? Partial obedience is total disobedience. When we say, God, when God calls, and it's clear, whatever that is, that could be a million things in your life. I mean, I start working through a list. I want you to serve here. I want you to give that. I want you to bless that person. I want you to share about my love to that person. When, when, when we say no, or when we say um, Maybe when I get to it, when I have more faith, right, when I've grown more, then I will jump in. Then I'll say yes. When you get saved, you sign a check. I know no one uses checks these days, right, but just follow along here, okay? So you sign it. When you get saved, you pull out the check of your life. You sign your name at the bottom, and you hand it over to God, and he fills in the rest. Your life is a It's a blank check to God. Christianity is not about knowledge. It's not about what you have here. It's about the transformation here, right? It's about about you growing. It's about you being in obedience, you walking with God. That's what it means. And so he calls them rebels. You know, um, um, he doesn't speak to the rock. He strikes the rock. He does contrary to what God has told him to do. God was clear. And he did contrary. And that's us. God is clear about something. We don't trust. We don't obey. We don't listen. Moses, he loses his temper. He's so frustrated. And honestly, who can blame him? Not about striking the rock. But like being sympathetic towards him. Like I'm sympathetic towards him. I mean, we all have different personalities. Some people are more like black and white. Nope. He struck the rock, you know, like I get it. It's not excusable, but I'm sympathetic towards him. I mean, here's this guy, you know, I mean, he escaped God's call, you know, for 40 years, you know, after killing an Egyptian. Then he comes back and he's leading God's people for 40 years, 40 years. Can you imagine having a dream, a dream for 40 years? And God says, no, at the midnight hour. That's heartbreaking. I don't care who you are. That's heartbreaking. Like, I, 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 I'm sympathetic towards that. I'm going to give you the flip side in a moment. So don't just think, don't just think, oh, man, you're getting all, like, man-centered on it. No, 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 no. No, 
God had every right to say, you're not leading my people into the promised land. But from a human standpoint, man, when dreams die, there's disappointments. That's hard. That's hard. Especially when it's a consequence of our own sin. Eleanor Roosevelt wisely said, anger is one letter short of danger. I thought that was good. Never heard that before. Anger is one letter short of danger. That's what it is. When you get angry, man, it's, it's danger. Will Rogers fam- famously said, people who fly into a, into a rage rarely make a good landing, right? So true. We know that he didn't go into the promised land. Deuteronomy 34, 7, it wasn't because of old age, because notice what it says. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. His figure was unabated. Now, one thing that you may not be aware of, which is very interesting, the rock that he struck is a type of Christ. Notice what Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 4. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. So I want you to see that the spiritual meaning here, the rock in the wilderness and the desert was a picture of God himself. It was God saying, I am the one supplying your needs. I am the one giving you water for life. Now, if you fast forward to the New Testament, when you think about water and life, water being life-giving, like you think of Jesus and his encounter with the Samaritan woman. You know, Jesus kind of took a pit stop. Took a pit stop. It was providence that he showed up the exact city, the exact day, the exact time to meet this Samaritan woman. Samaritans and Jews didn't get along. They didn't like each other. They didn't live on the same block. He engages her in a spiritual conversation. You know, she's had five husbands. The one she's with is not her husband. And notice what Jesus said to her in John 4, 13 and 14. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Speaking of the well water. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And we know that she ran to the town and she told people that she had found Christ. She became an evangelist, right? Listen, Jesus was saying, listen, drop your your temporary, earthly, fleeting water pots. They're only going to satisfy you so long. You gotta keep going back to the, to, the, to the water pots. But Christ was saying, I am the life-giving, soul-satisfying, thirst-quenching fountain of life. In John 7, verse 38, Jesus said, whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. How can you be made right with God? Keep all his commandments. Get baptized, give to the poor, be a good person, tithe, right? Be an upstanding, morally right person, no. Hogwash. The Bible says the gospel good news, the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. 
The only way we, we are going to be allowed entrance into the kingdom of heaven is if we know Christ as our Savior. If we are treasuring Christ above all things, if the Bible says it, it's, it's repentance and faith, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a coin. Turn from your sin, turn to faith in Christ. And some people say, that's it? That, that's it? That, that, that's, that's how I can know this God who created me, who loves me, who died for me? Yes. This is the God that, I mean, if I, if I turn from sin, place, follow Christ, I will be given eternal life. According to Jesus, yes. And that is God's grace. It's a gift, right? We try to earn forgiveness, but with God, it's something that's freely given. It's extended to us. Now, let's back up into the story. Numbers 20, let's look at verses 12 and 13. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me, so circle that, underline that. That's key. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. So that's the second charge. All right. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord and through them he showed himself holy. All right, so I know I, I touched on it briefly. I just want you to understand this. Moses is a seasoned vet. He's not some fly-by-night spiritual leader. God has shaped him. God has built him. God has made him. He's been patiently leading God's people for 40 years. They've been grumbling. They've been negative. They've, they've been critical of, of um, the, the choice of his wife. They've been critical of his uh, prominent position. They've been doubting God. We saw the rebellion that broke out last week. And listen, there have been many times where God has wanted to just wipe them out. Several times God's like, I'm wiping them out. I'm consuming them. And what does Moses do? He steps in and he intercedes and he pleads for God's mercy and grace to be poured out on his people. But he gets to this point, he's tired, he's worn out, he's frustrated. And what does he do? He hits the rock. He hits the rock. His frustration leads to anger. And you know what Moses did? He went at it his own way. That's what he did. He took matters into his own hands. How often do we take matters into our own hands? Life's not turning out the way we want it to. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. Right? I, I, I'm, I'm going to be the driver. I'm going to be in the seat. I'm going to make the call. Right? He took matters into his own hands. You might say, it seems so small. Like, it seems so small. He just, he didn't speak to the rock. He struck the rock. Small things with God are big things. Big things. Two charges. God says, Moses, you didn't believe me. Like, you didn't, you didn't believe me, Moses, that, that, that you could speak and water would gush out. Number two, you didn't uphold me as holy. What does that mean? God's saying, Moses, you are the spiritual leader. God's holding him accountable. It's really scary. If you're in a leadership role, God's going to hold you accountable. And God is saying, you, you did not uphold me as holy. You didn't treat me as holy. You didn't show to the people that I'm holy. You know, when Jesus gives us the, um, the Lord's Prayer, right? He says, hallowed be your name. And really, really that means the uh, make your name great, right? Sanctify God's name. Make God's name holy. Holy. You look at this here, 
And it's similar wording. Uh, maybe your translation might say sanctify. You didn't sanctify my, my word, right? Um, Moses, he was careless. He wasn't hallowing God's name. He wasn't sanctifying God's name. And so he wasn't treating God, his character, his attributes, his name as holy. And therefore, God lowers the boom. God lowers his hand of discipline on Moses' life. Sometimes, well, every time, sin has consequences. But sometimes in our lives, instead of saying, you know what? Sometimes we want to connect consequences of sin to the enemy. You know, we, we want to blame the devil for everything. But you know what? In life, those consequences are really from the Lord. God's bringing discipline and consequences to shape us and, and to mold us. Now, I want you to, I want to read a passage of scripture for you. I want to, sh- to shift real quick to Deuteronomy chapter 3. So, the book of Exodus, really, the bulk of it is about, you know, God turning a, a family into a nation, God raising up a deliverer with Moses, all the events that happened in Egypt, you know, um, the Exodus, Red Sea, um, Ten Commandments, you know, the laws, the covenants, everything, right? Get the covenant at Sinai. Then you come to the Leviticus. It's all about the sacrificial system. Numbers is about really a, a lot of the, the journeys, wandering in the wilderness. Then when you come to Deuteronomy, the beginning of Deuteronomy in chapter 1, it says in the 40th year. They are on the edge of the promised land. They could taste it. They're so close. And Moses gives his final farewell speech. He really, it's really, he really gives a reminder to the people. Okay, this is who God is. And this is how we walk with God. So it's like a a transfer of leadership from Moses to Joshua. But I want you to see what he says here. He gives us insight into what happened in Numbers chapter 20. Deuteronomy 3, it says, Moses speaks and he says, and I pleaded with the Lord. He said, I pleaded with the Lord at that time saying, oh Lord God, you have only begun. You have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours. Moses is like, God, there's no one like you. You are amazing. You are awesome. And, and I've only got to taste a little bit of it. I'm your servant. And he's pleading with God. And then we'll notice what it says. Please let me go over. So he's pleading. He's saying, please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country in Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Go up to the top of Pixah and lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward and look at it with your eyes. For you shall not go over this Jordan. But charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him for he shall go over at the head of this people and he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. Moses is pleading with God. Can you just, I hope you could just put yourself in his shoes and you feel um, his heart breaking 
It, Moses knew that he sinned. He knew that he had done wrong. And Moses is like, God, please give me another chance. But God had a different plan. Sometimes in our lives, we want certain things to unfold in a certain way. God has a different plan. You know, it's good to plan. It's good to walk by faith. God establishes our steps. But ultimately, it's God who's doing things and working and opening doors and closing doors. We walk by faith, not by sight. It's, it's like, I think it was Jerry Bridges who said, walking by faith is like walking forward and a sheet is in front of you. And as you move, the sheet moves. Like you can't, you don't see much of the future. But you're walking by faith, not by sight. You're trusting God. You're trusting his good heart and his grace in your life. So he's pleading with God. And God says, Moses, no more. Like, I made my decision. You're going to transfer your authority to Joshua. And Joshua's going to lead my people into the promised land. When there's failure in our lives, that doesn't mean that it's final. I think a lot of believers, we struggle with failure and we think, God can never use me. It's over, right? Now listen, like God used Moses in an incredible way, in such a powerful way. And, and now he's transferring authority, spiritual leadership to Joshua and Joshua's gonna be leading. And so we have to remember, you know what? Sometimes God closes doors. But it doesn't mean that he's through with you. It doesn't mean that he can't use you again because he can. Now, I'm going to give you a few points of application real quick. And then we're going, to, we're going to be done. Here's point number one. Extend grace towards difficult people. Um, you know, Moses had to deal with some pretty difficult people. Anybody know any difficult people in your life? If you're quiet, you're probably the difficult person. All right? Right? <laughs> so like if, how many of you maybe have a coworker and they're always out to maybe make you look bad so they look good, right? They're the ones pushing, I mean trampling over people to get that promotion. Maybe that person always trying to get the credit. They're not gonna give you the credit. You did most of the work, right? Difficult people. Or maybe you have um, in-laws, I call them in loves because when you're blessed with in-laws that are really like in loves, life's sweet, right? But maybe you have in-laws, right? In-laws. And these in-laws want to just give you parenting suggestions. They just want to, they just want to tell you how to do this and how to do that. They're always nitpicking you. Difficult people. Can I get an amen? Maybe not. Maybe not an amen. Or maybe you got that child, that one child, and that one child is not like your other children. And that one child has been gifted with knowing how to push your buttons. Right? Right? Yeah, yeah. Don't, don't tell that child that they're the child who pushes your buttons. Okay? But they just know how to push your buttons, right? Or maybe you have that passive-aggressive friend. One day they're kind to you. The next day they don't take your phone call. But like they're, they're rude to you. And you're like, what the heck? People are difficult. Here's the deal. God calls us not to love the lovable. He calls us to love the unlovable. He calls us to love difficult people. I mean, Jesus had a whole conversation about, about all this with his disciples, right? About doing good to the Gentiles and people that are not like you and showing grace. That, as Christ followers, we are called to be like that, right? 
God, God says, I don't want you to love easy people. I want you to love difficult people. I want you to love people that maybe, you know what, you and them, personality-wise, you don't sync up. You don't jive. They kind of get on your nerves. Maybe that person has been sent by God into your life to refine you like sandpaper. Right? So what do you do? What do you do with difficult people? Number one, you pray for your heart. Pray for your heart. God, soften my heart towards them. Number two, pray for them. I challenge you, pray for someone that's frustrating you. I did do it recently. It's hard to be mad at someone when you're praying for them. It really is. Because you're like praying that God will bless them and you know all these things and um, it changes your heart. Really, when it comes to relationships, it's not about their heart, it's about your heart. It's about you getting your heart right. And then instead of moving away, sometimes we want to just ditch them, right? You ever played ditch them when you were a kid? You should, oh, ditch them, right? And everyone starts running away from one kid. I mean, it's really sad, you know, if you're the one being ran away from, right? God says, don't play ditch them. Don't leave them high and dry. Move towards them. Move towards them. Forgive them. Get to know them. And you know what? Honestly, you know what I've learned? Hurting people hurt. When people are difficult, there's junk, there's stuff, there's something there. When you peel back the onion layers, there's, there's deep hurt. Because behind anger, generally there's hurt and there's pain. Here's point number two. Focus on eternal things, not earthly things. Focus on eternal things, not earthly things. You know, frustration creeps in when we set our minds on things here, on earth, and not above. Colossians 3, 1 to 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, uh, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated, the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died in your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I've got quite a few notes on this. I'm running out of time. So let me see what's most important real quick. He gives us two commands. Seek the things that are above. Set your minds on things that are above. Well, what's above? Verse one and two says, where Christ is, not on things that are on earth. The word seek is a present imperative. It's in the mood of a continuous command. The Spirit of God is saying, I want you to seek and keep seeking the things above. I don't want you to seek and get satisfied and then blow it off. Seek, keep seeking, keep seeking, and, and have, this, have this desire to pursue Christ, the life of Christ. Um, Man, I really want to talk more, but we're running out of time. All right, point number three. Where do you need to trust God in your life? Where do you need to trust God in your life? You know what? God's command in your life about something may be super clear right now, and you know it's really clear. So here's what I'm going to say. Are you ready? You can speak to the rock, or you can strike the rock. You could listen to God or you could not listen to God. That's what it comes down to. So maybe today you simply say, I'm not a believer. I don't know Christ. And I would say, surrender. Turn from sin. Place faith in Christ. Admit that you're a sinner, spiritually bankrupt, in need of God. You can't do anything to earn God's grace, his forgiveness, his love. That's why he sent Jesus to die for you. The greatest gift. 
Jesus, the champion of grace, the hero of heaven. This is why he came, to bridge the gap so that you can be forgiven. So you can commit your life and you can walk with him for the rest of your life. If you need to come to Christ today, I want to challenge you to do that. If you're a believer, think about the clear command. What do you need to speak to instead of strike in your life? Let's pray.